The call for a more carbon-friendly energy sector continues to grow, but how do we ensure that we all have enough power to avoid brownouts or blackouts? Well, nuclear energy is back on the table as a possible answer. In Washington, D.C., Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm recently said it's critical for the nation to find a solution for storing spent nuclear fuel. And in this episode, we talk with Senate District 40 Representative and Energy and Telecommunications Committee member Terry Gothier about some of its recent eco-innovations and potential as an energy provider. Later, we go up to Glendive to talk with Lower Yellowstone Irrigation Project Manager James Brower about a new fish channel that's taken a lot of time and money to complete and its early results for eastern Montana. There's a lot to get into here, so let's get started with Tom's chat with Senator Terry Gothier. A lot to discuss here as we first welcome State Senator Terry Gothier, Senate District 40. He is a, a member of this Energy and Telecommunications Interim Committee, ETEC, they call it. Um, and it's one of these committees that is looking into the possibility. We talked a little bit about it here, the small nuclear reactors. Um, and and is Montana right for that? And do we have some infrastructure over there at Coal Strip uh, that, that may suit that model? We'll, we'll get into that. But uh, uh, Senator Gothier, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this this is moving forward, at least the discussion part of this, right? Yeah, thank you, Tom. Yeah, the discussion on the small modular reactor and technologies for nuclear power for Montana is accelerated like I'd never dreamed before. All of a sudden, it's like everybody come. Uh, we're awake. We're realizing now that the energy grid, we just can't do this with wind and solar. And I support wind and solar. But you order to put this whole thing together as a workable solution, we have to work in another base load generation power option. And, of course, that's the advanced small modular reactors. And those particular technology, of course, as probably a lot of people heard, is being developed now in Wyoming with Bill Gates and TerraPower. And Warren Buffett's also partnered with him on that project. And we also have a project out there in Washington State that is also coming online. And then we also have the, of course, we talked about the new scale that's actually started construction down in INL. These are all demonstration commercial reactors, and they're all being funded. Approximately 50% of the cost of the construction of those three different reactors are paid for by the Department of Energy because they realize it's important. We have to be able to replace the, the, the megawatts, the terawatts, and all we're going to lose from all these uh, basically like coal power generation facilities are closing, the natural gas plants are closing, and then potentially losing hydro. For example, Montana right now is going to be approximately 1,500 megawatts short of meeting supply, and Northwestern Energy has made that very openly clear that we have to have additional solutions. So I'm going to leave it with that for just a moment and let, let you catch up with me. Yeah, now, and um, and that's a big part of this too. The what? Why did – nuclear energy go off of uh, the table in terms of i know because i think we've got like some 90 uh, in the country uh, we haven't had a, a, a large power plant go i mean get approved for 20 plus years um, and now some of these units uh, a number of them have been um, retired uh, wh- why why did it go off the table and did we handle those uh, are we handling those issues that brought it off the table well, that is one of the best questions you can ask probably all day here, Tom. You know, that's uh, unfortunately back in 1994, President Bill Clinton at the time, under a lot of pressure, and we had the Three Mile Island incident. And we're talking these are traditional nuclear power plants. We had an accident out there. We had Chernobyl, of course, later on. But we basically had a stroke of a pen. Unfortunately, our president at that time basically killed the whole program. The, where we've been developing this technology is the Idaho Nuclear Laboratories down in Idaho Falls. 
they went from a fully operational budget down to basically they could barely keep the lights on. So and it's really kind of interesting. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but in the state of California, their goal was to close every nuclear facility in the state of California. As of two or three weeks ago, Governor Newsom has come back to his people in, my, in California and said, maybe we shouldn't close our last nuclear power plant. Maybe we need to keep this because California's got some serious power issues. And I could talk a whole nother hour just about talking about smart grid and all those kind of things where we're trying to tie in all these uh, electrical generators into one co-op and then be able to dispatch power throughout the country. But again, we're talking nuclear power. Every nuclear power plant, traditional one that's in the country today are all getting extensions in Illinois. For example, the two of them where they had scheduled to close have all been renewed now for another additional 20-year leases. Mm. The Paraburdi power plant in Arizona is also going to get an extension. So, yes, those are very important things, and we cannot do this zero-carbon base uh, without those power plants. Well, um, that's a declarative and definitive statement. Some would argue with that, but I'm, I'm lean toward that as well if we can keep this power safe. Um, with us is State Senator Terry Gothier, uh, Senate District 40. That's the west and north side of Helena. It includes Wolf Creek as well, member of the Energy and Telecommunications um, Interim Committee, uh, and also uh, sat on business and labor and economic affairs and chair the local government committee in this, this last session. Uh, so um, as Energy Secretary Granholm says uh, recently, um, just, just posturing kind of out loud, it's, it's, uh, the nation needs to find a solution Restoring the spent nuclear fill fuel. Um, let's let's start with that that issue right now. These spent uh, rods. How how long do we have to store them? How, store them? How secure are they? How big a problem is this to actually then making nuclear power? Um, I guess safe in terms of confidence in the American public. Well, another good, really, really, really good question, and we talk about that in our committee, and we. We spend a lot of time talking about that at Idaho Nuclear Laboratories down in Idaho Falls. And by the way, I want you to know that particular facility is going gangbusters. Their operational budget now is $1.6 billion mm. a year. Um, the, the, what's going on down there and, and testing of nuclear safety is amazing. But what are we talking about waste? Everybody says waste is our biggest problem. Actually, the waste is really not a storage issue problem. If you look at most of the facilities, they're, they're storing the waste on site in stainless steel canisters with concrete reinforced um, um, facilities on site. It's really not a problem. But what's really kind of cool is now France, for example, France is leading the world in in use of nuclear power. They have 70% of their electrical generations from nuclear, and they're building more. But they're the leaders in the commercial aspect. They've already recycling 17% of their used fuel rods are now their new fuel for their new reactors. Oh, wow. INL. INL right now we've been able to we've been able to uh, recycle nuclear fuel for years, so INL has been doing this for years. But it's it's just like a raw material. Most places, if you can buy it cheaper in a raw material, why not buy it? And then you just you know store the waste. Well, the future, two generations from now, this is really kind of cool. Is we're projecting. Bill Gates is saying we're going to probably have five. 500 small modular reactors in the United States by 2050. But he says what's really cool is all the spent nuclear waste we have in this country is going to be a gold mine to those two generations down the road because that's going to be the fuel that's going to run those reactors. It's already there. They're just going to repurpose it, repackage it, and put it back in the reactor because the fuel, most people don't know it, when they retire a fuel rod and they're just small pellets, 
in a big stainless steel rods. We actually watched them fuel a nuclear reactor in INL while we were there actively doing a real reactor. It was pretty cool. <laughs> and putting these things – go ahead. No, no, I was just, I was just so, laughing. I mean, yeah, uh, that, that's technology cool. that would be pretty cool. And we were right there watching, and we were only 20 feet away from them fueling a, a real reactor. It was absolutely amazing and how safe it was. How'd they do so, it? But they're going to repurpose. Well, they did. The actual guys were doing it were uh, they had all their little suits on and, you know, hats and gloves. But these were all the fuel rods. When they initially put a fuel rod into the center core of the reactor, they're not active. They're not radioactive at all. It's not until they actually put them in and like, turn the reactor on is when they actually create that, uh, you know, the electron you know, where they start bouncing off each other and they create that heat. Mm-hmm. And not until the time they actually turn them on do they actually a radioactive material. I see. So it's pretty cool. So with that being said, um, the, the recycling of the fuel is the future for the future generations down the road. And that's, that to me is just amazing. So all that nuclear waste that we have in our country now, a lot of them are stored right on location, right where the nuclear power plants are at, are going to be that new fuel. Okay. I know there's been discussion about um, uh, maybe states or communities um, opening up some kind of uh, process through regulation, I guess, to to allow that. Do um, do new. Oh, oh let's let's go to uh, Glenn. Glenn's listening. In Great Falls. Glenn, thanks for hanging on here and listening on the 1450 KQDI um, a topic you're interested in. You've got a question here for State Senator Terry Gothier. Well, more <clears throat> question statement, both, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, why they're doing all this in, look investigating and looking into why don't they look into back into thorium nuclear power thorium, thorium is, has proven itself two other plants but they couldn't produce uh, weapons grade plutonium out of it because it realizes uh, doesn't utilize 235 uranium 235 anyway question I got is why don't we use that? Why don't we look at it? You can use it for a fuel. It doesn't require cooling towers, and it, and it's, it's safer than nuclear, straight nuclear. Yes, and, and Glenn, thanks for that because uh, Glenn brought up these questions a little while ago too, and have looked into that, and um, it does seem like an alternative. But Terry, um, it's not viable. No, actually, um, he's right on. Um, yeah. That's exactly what TerraPower is going to do. Is, is they're doing thorium. They're going to be using that material actually in the Terra power plant. So this is what's so cool about these three different demonstration reactors that are being funded by the Department of Energy is that Bill Gates' one is actually that particular model, and it's going to be tested. And, and when they build, remember, these are not only are they test reactors, they're also going to be commercial reactors. Once they're actually running, they're going to sell their electricity to their customer base to the electrical grid. So, yes, those, those particular technologies, all part of the test that the Department of Energy is going to do. And a small modular reactor technology that we're looking at today does not require cooling towers. There's, this is self-internal cooling system. It's like a radiator on a car system. We recycle that steam through a condenser, returns it back to a water base, and they, they maintain about 24 million approximate gallons of water within the actual plant itself. That's actually the coolant for the light water reactor for, like, say, new scale. But there will be no cooling towers. I just want to make that point. That's cool. Uh, Glenn, uh, any follow-ups? you got, like, uh, 10, 15 seconds here. 
Oh, no, I'm glad to hear that, yeah. because thorium, if Japan had been using thorium nuclear energy, then they would not have had the explosion, they would not have had the nuclear fallout they had because of the tsunami. All right, gotcha. Well, that's great to hear. Glenn, thank you, and uh, State Senator Terry Gothier, stand by. We've got more to talk about here as we're looking at the possibility of exchanging some coal-based, I hate to say it that way, um, energy, possibly for nuclear power here, in, even in Montana. More to come on Voices in a bit. Last year, after a spectacular leap over the couch, if I say so myself, I snapped my ankle in three places. Through healing and rehabbing, my Pacific Source health plan did exactly what was required. But when I had to miss a bunch of work, Pacific Source showed me what it means to go beyond what's required. They actually helped me connect with community resources, who in turn helped me with my rent and utility bills. And they also found me professional help for all the stress I was under while I couldn't work. Pacific Source Health Plans, going beyond what's required for members in need. With State Senator Terry Gothier, uh, Senate District 40, again west and north side of Helena uh, as a state senator and uh, serving on one of, well, he's served business, labor, local government, energy and telecommunications. And on this um, interim committee, which they call ETEC, the Energy and Telecommunications Committee, uh, and there's been um, a, a directive to study the possibility of uh, nuclear power here in Montana. And Terry, I, I certainly appreciate you, you being alongside this committee, by the way, uh, people can go to ledge, leg.mt.gov. Um, and and find this energy and telecommunications interim committee. They've got meeting dates. Um, you guys have wrapped one up here not that long ago, as a matter of fact, uh, the 19th and the 20th, uh, in July 19th and 20th, meeting again and also in September. Uh, uh, Terry, uh, talk about the progress on on this uh, interim committee in terms of, uh, you know, the study that's going on here in Montana and, and the committee itself. Is it getting things done? Well, thanks, Tom. We're discussing a lot of issues, and I'll tell you, one of the things I really enjoy about the committee is the diverse um, people that are on the committee, because we do have some people on our committee that are not too excited about the option of nuclear power. A lot of it's misinformation and and from old technology. So we have discussed everything we've discussed. We've had multiple panels from different, from both sides of the fence, the pro, you know, from the new scale folks, from all the people from the Department of Energy talking and we actually are being actively watched closely by INL and that Department of Energy group in Idaho Falls. And we also have on the other side of the fence the ones that say the only way we should go is wind and solar and battery backup and, of course, hydrogen. And those are all great issues. So we're all discussing those things. We're all learning, and we're all going to come back. And I think overall, I think we're all coming to the center of the road on this. And there's still some folks that are very concerned about the safety of nuclear waste and as far as the cost of what's associated to the state of Montana ratepayers. And we've discussed that and we possibly have solutions for that. So I think as a committee, we have moved forward that INL trip that we took down to Idaho Falls last, uh, last month or two months ago. We spent two full days down at that facility and learned a ton. ton. There's over 123 doctorate engineers that work at that facility. Mm. There was over 300 and some masters, and then there was like 1,200 bachelor of science degrees. Lots of people, very smart people working through these problems down there. It's very encouraging to see where they're going. You know, and you said um, it's got a $1.6 billion uh, budget, but uh, uh, during the Clinton administration, he zeroed that budget out. Who restored that budget? You know, that's another – I just love it. You're, you're right on the money here, Tom. <laughs> you know, that's really kind of funny. First of all, President Trump was in support of the advancement of the, the – 
we need to look at other options to get to zero base carbon. Yeah. And then President Biden's administration, the same thing. They're on board with it, too. So we go the two, the current president and the last president, both have said we have to do something with this. We have to get to that zero carbon based energy sector that we want to be. We have to look at these options. And it's not just nuclear. We're looking at all kinds of things. And again, hydrogen is being talked about heavily, and we talk about that on our committee. And the and the byproduct of the small modular reactor is that we'll be able the excess of heat created from these plants can actually do to create. They'll be able to create hydrogen in the plants right. right next yep. door to a small modular reactor. Yep, and Mitsubishi cool Power, uh, Mitsubishi Power is big on that. We had their um, their CEO on, as a matter of fact, um, and I know that they're starting um, to move forward with projects in, in Butte and across the West and, and into Canada, too, regarding hydrogen power. Uh, Terry Gothier is with us. Let's take a quick call from Lisa listening in Miles City. The topic today is nuclear energy and small uh, small modular, modular reactors. Still can't say it. Uh, Lisa, thanks. You're on the air here on Voices. Good morning. I prefer the carbon capture for coal, mm. but I'm not in charge so if you do go with the nuclear, uh, would you promise to only buy the u- uranium from Stillwater Mining Company? Because that's located here in Montana. Let's, let's, yeah, that, that's a good question, Terry. What are the sources for, um, for nuclear power? Are they going to be stable? Does China own everything? Um, do we have some ability here in the United States to craft our own energy future? Um, uh, an excellent question. Thank you for that. Thanks, um, Lisa. What we have here is it's kind of, first of all, I'd like to address Coal Strip real quickly. You know, Coal Strip, the whole idea is to build this small modular reactor right next door to Coal Strip. And my, 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 I would love to see Coal Strip stay open until the moment we turn the switch on to the small modular reactor and then see Coal Strip then officially shut down. Because we are going to repurpose those employees from the coal power coal-powered plant, and turn them into now working at the small modular reactor facility. I like we're that have plan. We're going to have training for that. Um, it, oh, it's a great plan. It's aggressive. Yeah, gonna... it's, it's aggressive, and it's it, um, a lot of pieces have to come together, but um, it seems to make sense. It does, and the more we talk about it, the more it's being talked about heavily. And, and most of these small modular reactors right now are being targeted where there's coal-powered driven plants um, to replace those because the infrastructure is in place. We already got the high-power transmission lines are already in place. And that's a big cost. To build those transmission lines are not cheap. And, of course, then permitting the new power line, if you've been following any of that, that would be very difficult to build a new power line. So we're targeting coal power plants. But now, now the power, we're talking uranium. Who produces uranium for us? Well, right now, most of our uranium is coming from Russia. And now we're talking, you know, high enriched uranium that we'd need for thorium, which is down in, let's say, uh, uh, down in Wyoming that Bill Gates is going to do. That mm-hmm. comes from Russia. So we have some, we could potentially have some problems with that. Well, the problem is, or actually the opportunity when you have a higher enriched uranium where you're taking it right to that 20% level, anything above 20% and above can be considered weapons grade uh, oh. material. Yeah. And we got to be careful with that. White light water reactors are only 6 and 7% grade. It's like low octane fuel that, you know, remember the old knocking in the motor? I mean, it's, that's why we have to refuel more often because the fuel is not near as efficient as what we'll use in Theorium. But we have nuclear, nuclear mining facilities in the United States that have been closed. They've been scuttled. Those are all part of the 1994 deal with Bill Clinton. So could we reopen these mines? 
potential, yes. Have we discussed that in the committee? No. Okay. This is over my – it's not on my pay grade here. I wish I could talk more about it, but we do have the opportunity to do some of that in the United States, and we, we need to become self-reliant within our own country with some of these uh, raw material issues. Appreciate that. And, and Lisa, answer. thanks for the call. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, Terry, stand by. State Senator Terry Gauthier is with us. So we'll take a break and come on back as we talk more about nuclear energy, possibly in Montana, but certainly in the country. Join Town Pump's Pump It Up Rewards Plus program and never pay full price for fuel again. Save five cents on every gallon every day at any town pump across Montana. Plus, earn and redeem points on your favorite in-store items to get free stuff with our clubs. Stop in and pick up a rewards card. Download the Pump It Up Rewards Plus app today. Or visit townpump.com slash rewards to register and start saving. Finishing up on our nuclear discussion with State Senator Terry Gothier from Senate District 40. Um, and some good calls coming in on this, uh, Terry. Uh, obviously, uh, there's there's a lot of interest in there. It seems like there's a lot of interest. Um, what um, what is the committee trying to accomplish? What we're trying to do as a committee, as Energy and Telecommunications, and I am vice chair of that committee, is we're looking at, is this feasible? Is this going to be something we can actually make work for the state of Montana? Because we are going to, like I say, we're going to be short twelve to 1,500 megawatts after we close full strip. Yeah. There is $6 billion still out there from the Department of Energy that's available for another demonstration commercial reactor. And I would love to be able to see us capture 50% of the buildings of cost through the Department of Energy. So we need to move. Wow. I would like to see these results and hopefully go to the governor, and the governor will say, this could work for Montana. These small nuclear reactors, we're going to have to talk more about this because there's there's a, a ton of things here. And I know we've got another committee meeting upcoming here July 19th and 20th. So we'll make sure we circle back as we run out of time here today. Um, are they are they safer? Are, um, do they use less fuel? What's, what's the idea behind the small nuclear reactor? Again, another excellent question. What makes the small modular reactors so unique? Is there only a third of the size? of an existing nuclear reactor. They only take a 35-acre footprint, but yet they're going to provide dispatchable baseload power generation 24-7, even when it's minus 30 degrees or 120. But what makes these things good is they're going to be built in a factory-type system like we make a Ford F-250. You put the thing, they build these small modular reactors. They're, they're only about 85 foot tall. They look like a big Stanley thermos. And you can put up to 12 in one facility. They'll build them in a factory. You build the containment center for the thing. You drop these reactors that were built under very controlled, safe environment into this facility, put them all together. But right now, the safety record with these are going to be – they don't need any human interaction at all to shut them off. They don't even require any power. They're designed to shut themselves off if anything goes wrong without any power or people involved. It's a great – it's one of the most safety-minded – systems ever designed for this type of energy i know there's quite a few videos out go ahead yeah no there there are um and we're gonna have to circle back on this i know there's some opposition to it too and uh but there more to come state senator terry gothier thank you terry take care and talk to you soon thank you tom continues right after this Make history when you join the Montana Historical Society. The new edition is under construction, but a good portion of the museum in Helena is still open, including the Charlie Russell Gallery and Research Center. There's free admission to members at both the museum and the original governor's mansion. 
We've got big history in Big Sky Country, and you can be part of the excitement when you become a member of the Montana Historical Society. Join online at mhs.mt.gov. Something was realized here up in uh, the eastern part of Montana, east central Montana, Glendive, Sydney area, and we have talked about it in the past. There's this new fish passage that just opened up to bypass um, the intake, intake diversion dam. Now, this is not a full-on dam. This is just um, uh, a diversion structure that diverted water, uh, and, and this thing is 100 years old, into the lower Yellowstone irrigation um, um, a project. And that there's 500 homes. There's 59,000 acres. Um, there's six communities that get water off that system. And um, honestly, that system was jeopardized um, over a, um, a lawsuit brought by environmentalists. And, and it's, there's kind of a backstory here that we have talked about in the past. And maybe we'll, we'll catch up on that a bit. But let's talk about first James Brower, manager of the Lower Yellowstone Irrigation Project, about the success of this. It seems like after the work to get it done was complete, and it took uh, certainly a chore in the courts and then on the ground, it seems early on there's been success with this uh, fish passage. Yes, Tom. I, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to the people around us. And and I am very excited today to tell you that uh, a reclamation and fish and wildlife and parks crews from the state of Montana have confirmed 10 radio-tagged endangered species pallid sturgeon have successfully passed by the bypass channel. There is another pallid sturgeon that would be the 11th tagged one, and that, this isn't counting all the ones that haven't been tagged, but there's 11th tagged pallid sturgeon currently navigating the fish bypass right now as we talk on the radio. Interesting. And, and there were those who opposed this project that said that wasn't going to happen. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, we had a lot of biologists from a lot of different places, a lot of out-of-state people, and, and the textbooks have been written 20, 30 years ago, uh, mostly for pallid sturgeon in the lower Missouri River that's been highly channelized and, and made for, for barge traffic with lots of riprap. And, and their fish, their understanding of the pallid sturgeon back then was that it stayed in the mainstream only, but that's because they didn't have a lot of side channels. Uh, or their side channels are swampy. Uh, the Montana biologists for the last 25 years have, have been out there studying them, and, and they usually catch them in the main part of the Yellowstone River, which isn't all that deep very often. And, you know, they they felt that, you know, okay, this seems correct. They'll only stay in the main channel, and our textbooks have been teaching us in college that they'll only stay in the main channel. But uh, I don't know, seven years ago, Fish and Wildlife and Parks put up some two radio receivers in, in an old uh, natural high water flood channel that only had water in it six to eight weeks a year. And, and they caught, you know, four pallid sturgeon using that side channel. Wow. And that kind of changed the game. But we we're in the middle of a lawsuit brought on by two giant international um, endangered species wildlife clubs. Uh, the Defenders of Wildlife, the Natural Resource Defense Council, and they sued us to stop the construction of this fish bypass uh, and fought to have our intake dam that's been running perfectly for 113 years removed. And everybody hears dam, and, and even Judge Brian Morris and, and these Defenders of Wildlife and Natural Resource Defense Council, 
they picture the Hoover Dam or the Grand Coulee <laughs> Dam, some big concrete structure 50 feet above the water. No, no, we're actually a diversion weir, and and that's just a, a bump, like a parking a parking bump in a parking lot, uh, and it's underwater. It just controls the level of elevation just enough to push a, a third of the water um, in low water times uh, into the main canal that's 76 miles long, goes through Montana, North Dakota, uh, feeds 59,000 acres. And, and even Montana Bureau of Mines and Geology proved that the, the main canal and the irrigation provided the water that the, the six communities and a couple of cities, three cities, uh, drinking wells came out of. And so if they'd removed our dam, they would have dried up um, you know, 59,000 acres of irrigation, but more importantly, the six communities and cities drinking water. Yeah, and, and they said they had an alternative, but that alternative was not workable. Um, and- they were talking solar-powered, and they were talking wind power. And we were like, well, what do we do for water at night? And, and what do we do for, for water when the wind's not blowing? And, and uh, we even had some so-called you know, the engineers who'd gone over this, uh, you know, environmental, uh, say, well, you know, you guys don't irrigate at night. Well, actually, it takes us five days to prime the main canal, and you got to have the water running constantly. And, you know, and they also said, well, you know, battery or backup or, or buy water, buy power off the the grid. But we had our own, uh, we hired an engineering outfit from Helena, which is a long ways away from us, and they did a study, and it would have generated 36 million pounds of carbon pollution into the atmosphere that had never been generated before, uh, into the atmosphere to use these pumps like they were suggesting, uh, when our underwater diversion weir has, had never needed any power, hadn't yeah. ever created any pollution. Yep. Yeah, and and I mean, and again, there's a, a really good backstory here too, and and the success, um, um, I think is is merited here, and I want to talk about it. Uh, part of that backstory too is that those groups themselves were jeopardizing, and they knew it, jeopardizing uh, by this action, uh, the pallid sturgeon population, uh, even up uh, in and of itself because of that long delay. Um, I don't want to get into that too, and, and I know the judge. Um, just, I felt like just didn't even, didn't read some of uh, those filings, but, um, let's talk about this channel then. What let's, let's go to why, why is it important for Sturgeon to get further upstream? Okay. Well, uh, you're exactly right. The reason for the bypass channel that was designed with the help of the biologist and, and Montana fish, wildlife parks, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and and uh, a bunch of federal agencies. Um, the reason for the bypass is to let the endangered species, uh, the pallid sturgeon, through. But there is several other species of concerned or threatened fish species in the Yellowstone River. It also helps all of them, uh, including our favorite down here in northeastern Montana is the pallid sturgeon fishing season, which was going on last week. Not pallet surgeon, I'm sorry, the paddle Paddle fish. fishing. Paddle fishing, yeah, fish. big. You know, that's huge down here. But the biologist said eight years ago that, you know, they hadn't had a good recruitment of teenage paddlefish 
um, coming back and repopulating. So they've had limits on the paddle fishing season. And uh, uh, the point is, and they were looking at making them stricter. The point is, is that this fish passage, which is a mile and a half long, uh, designed to be as natural looking as possible while being also stable, um, you know, lets all the fish in the river go around our dam without removing it. Okay. And uh, like I said, really nowadays it's a weir because it's underwater, you know, it doesn't create a reservoir, but, um, you know, it lets all the fish go around. Uh, it's open, it's completed, it's been working. Uh, they also, what they were upset about is a hundred for the last 109 years before the new concrete weir we put underwater, we had to stack boulders up on this old wooden dam mm-hmm. and those boulders would stick up above the water during low water during late summer. And they cause a lot of turbulence, which also stopped the pallet sturgeon can't stand any turbulence. So those boulders stopped the pallet sturgeon from going over our underwater weir. And, and so what they did to make our, our old existing weir fish friendly is they got rid of those stacked boulders and they put an underwater concrete one. And that's where a lot of the environmentalists freaked out. They're like, well, we don't want any concrete in the Yellowstone River. And we're like, well, you guys just built 10 years ago a giant concrete fish screen structure on the side of the river to put these giant fish screens to prevent any fish from getting sucked into the lower Yellowstone Irrigation Canal. You know, and you weren't against concrete then, but we did things, you know, we covered the thing up with rock. It's going to naturally get covered up with dirt. But we did everything possible recommended by the biologists to make our weir fish friendly, including a 125-foot-wide fish notch. And uh, that's, on, that's on the river 700 feet wide, but for 125 feet of it in, the, in this underwater concrete parking curb is uh, a fish notch that's a couple feet deeper than the rest of it. And that way the larva and the fish coming back downstream after mating and, and laying their eggs can uh, um, get over the weir without having any problem. And there's no longer going to be those stack boulders. So we've helped the fish three different ways. We got rid of the stack boulders is the first way. We gave them a, a bypass designed um, like Patrick Brayton is a biologist for the USGS who studied migration patterns of the pallet surgeon for 20 years. And, and he said, you know, we've seen pallet sturgeon in these types of side channels. And so we, we designed it to work for the fish. It doesn't just work for the pallet sturgeon because a lot of people were like, why are we spending all this money on the pallet sturgeon? Now, this works for the paddlefish. It works for every fish in the Yellowstone River. And it's a solution. We think the reason the environmental clubs fought us so hard, even though we showed them on the first day that every day lost in court, uh, was making it less likely the pallid sturgeon would recover because the the adults were over 50 years old and they didn't know how long, you know, the older you get after 50, the less reproduction you have. But they fought us for three and a half years in court with us telling them on the first day, hey, fighting us in court is, is making it more likely the pallid sturgeon die out. Well, the reason they fought us is because when this bypass works, which it started working on May 4th, the first pallet sturgeon went through it. When this bypass works, 
Then, instead of them removing a thousand dams in the United States, which the American Fisheries Club bragged about in one of the public meetings that they'd removed a thousand dams, instead of them removing a thousand dams and and killing communities that are dependent on the water or the power from those dams, um, they now have a way that's cheaper than a concrete fish ladder to get any fish. The pallid sturgeon, according to the biologists and, and what the design criteria are, must be one of the worst swimming freshwater fish in the United States because they can't stand any turbulence. So we've designed the world's longest handicap access ramp at a mile and a half long. It's been proven to work for 10 pallid sturgeon, which by the way is more pallid sturgeon than they've ever seen um, come up to the dam looking for a way around. And they're going as and far as um, uh, near the Tongue River, too, I heard. Um, got to stand by. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I got just a few more questions, but I got to take a quick break here. James uh, Brower is with us here from uh, the Lower Yellowstone Irrigation Project. He's the manager there, and we're talking uh, about this new fish passage. Interesting stuff there, uh, James. I really appreciate that. Uh, more to come here. Busy is good. I'm feeling stronger. I can work harder, longer, since I quit. When treating drug and alcohol addiction, it is a myth that you cannot quit tobacco as well. In fact, those who quit tobacco during treatment are 25% more likely to stay sober. Decrease your risk of relapse while saving money and improving your health. Quit tobacco now. I'm finally feeling better. Call the Montana Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Brought to you by the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services. Why? Just think about it. Why is the number one selling brand of chainsaws not sold at Lowe's or the Home Depot? We can give you over 10,000 reasons. That's how many authorized local steel dealers you can find across the country. Visit one and you'll find a range of dependable gas and battery powered tools from trimmers to blowers. And you'll find service from experienced professionals. Real steel. Find yours at SteelUSA.com. Lowe's and Home Depot are trademarks of their respective companies. Just three words tell you everything you need to know. They tell you why we employ more than 2,000 workers at our factory in Virginia Beach and why over 10,000 local steel dealers are putting battery power in the hands of Americans. Just three words. Made in America. Real steel. Find yours at SteelUSA.com. The majority of steel products sold in America are made in America of U.S. and foreign materials. Batteries and chargers are sourced internationally. In agriculture, there are so many factors outside of our control, it can feel downright overwhelming. I got beyond the weather with Grain Growers President Trig Cook, and I asked him, how are you really doing? Hey, you know, it's a difficult situation coming off a drought. You know, there's a lot of of anxiety out there. You know, are we going to get any good measurable amounts of precipitation so that we can actually grow a crop? Are we going to have to buy more hay and talk about where on a guy's guy's farming, you know, mental health? Did you hear that? You're not alone. So I asked psychiatrist Eric Arzubi, when does a little worry turn into something you need to get some help for? So when you're struggling to sleep, when you're not eating as much as you probably should, when you're interacting with your friends and family in ways that are maybe different, you're more irritable, cranky, and if it's getting in the way of your ability to function at your best self, definitely time to reach out to others. Your operation needs you at your best. Brought to you by Northern Egg Network and the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, committed to reducing mental health stigma and enhancing the quality of life for all Montanans. Finishing up. Up here, a manager of the Lower Yellowstone Irrigation Project uh, with that fish passage. Again, some of that opposition you saw rooted in the, um, well, the avoidance of success uh, so that they could, uh, some of those environmental groups could uh, further their agenda. 
Um, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, congratulations, James, on getting this done early. Uh, there is success in this in terms of uh, this pallet sturgeon passing through these pallet sturgeons passing through this channel. I know people are going to ask uh, because we love to fish around here. Can you fish in that channel? Well, uh, the biologists really don't want anybody fishing during the last couple of months of May and the first, I mean, last couple of weeks of May and the first couple of weeks of June when the endangered species is going through because it's against the law to kill an endangered species. Yeah. So other than the last two weeks of May and the first two weeks of June, uh, you know, fishing fishing's fine at this point. Um, but it's against a lot of, you know, killing endangered species. So they, they don't want you, uh, fishing in the bypass during the, in pallid sturgeon migration. But other than that, you can fish and Joe's Island, um, they're still finishing up construction right now. Uh, they got to do cleanup or whatever, but, uh, you can boat over to Joe's Island. You can fish off the river shores, uh, and there are already, uh, private boats utilizing the bypass to safely get around the dam, fish above it and fish below oh, it. Yeah. So that's a huge in, increase and in, in benefit for the sportsmen. Yeah. And, hey, uh, James, out of, out of time, man, but I, I appreciate the work there, too, and, and uh, we'll chat down the road, okay? Definitely. Sounds great. Thank you very much.